The pace of innovation continues to accelerate, thanks in no small part to the growing sophistication of rare disease patients and their families. In Next, Imagining the Future of Rare Disease, Global Genes takes a wide view of the rare disease landscape to look at how technology is transforming our ability to understand, diagnose, treat, and deliver care to patients. But if we're to fully realize the potential before us today, we'll need to be innovative about the way we approach business, finance, organizational development, delivery, regulation, and access. To download a free copy of the report next, Imagining the Future of Rare Disease, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Jeremy Levin's high-profile success at building the pipeline at Bristol-Myers Squibb through deal-making and driving the company into immunotherapies has given him the ability to take virtually any job he'd like in the biopharmaceutical sector. Given that, it may seem surprising the big pharma executive chose to become CEO of a development stage company focused on rare neurological conditions. We spoke to Levin, CEO of Ovid Therapeutics, about why he took the job, the conditions the company is targeting, and whether his interest in rare diseases will shape the agenda of bio now that he serves as chairman of the trade group. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Daniel, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We're going to talk about Ovid, its efforts to develop gene therapies for rare neurological conditions, and your programs in development. Before we get into the work of Ovid, though, I'd like to start with you. You were one of the most prominent figures in big pharma. You're widely credited with remaking Bristol-Myers Pipeline with what's come to be known as the string of pearl strategy. My guess is you could be doing virtually anything you'd like within this industry what led you to a development stage company working on rare neurological diseases? Danilo, I'm at core, I have a couple of philosophical things that drive me. Number one, patience, and number two, innovation. And I feel very strongly about them. I feel that my mission in life is to improve patience and to drive innovation. So when I thought about my next steps after leaving a very large company, I really considered hard the opportunities which were in front of me, including running another very large company. And they all were laid out, and each one of them was marvelous. But what I really wanted to do was to directly and specifically help patients. And the way to do that for me was to go back to think through all the different areas that I felt had great opportunity. And the most important one I felt was the brain, the area of the brain, where I felt that we could now today make a difference, just as we did 10 years ago in the area of immuno-oncology and breaking over the concepts of how the body protects itself against cancer. 
here I felt in the brain there was an opportunity to make a difference. And so I decided to start a company, and I did, two people in a room, specifically targeted against those areas where, one, nobody had any kind of therapeutic, and that was of it, looking at neurodevelopment. And then the second was looking at a basic disease which we knew, but we seemed to have real difficulty in healing, and that's epilepsy. So the question was, could we help epileptics and cure them? And I got very excited by the technologies, and so I decided, perhaps a bit crazily, but definitely want to do it myself, to start a company. And that's what I've done. So I went from 50,000 people to two people in a room, and now we're 50. You're coming at this with a, a different perspective than a lot of other executives within the rare disease sector, given the depth of your past experiences. Through deal-making, you've had a fair bit of insight into the workings and challenges of entrepreneurial biotechs. What have you learned from those experiences, and, and do you think Ovid operates any differently than other emerging rare disease companies as a result? Well, it's the perspective you bring from this is a global perspective, and I have that. Having operated and run companies that operate in hundred, in over a hundred countries, you get to know what kinds of diseases people are really interested in. What are the challenges? For example, in some countries in the world, the rare neurological disorders are regarded as being ones that you should never treat because they're untreatable, and sometimes the children are actually disposed of, unfortunately. Other countries really believe that these disorders are ones that you really need to focus on and do investigations on and understand how you can improve them. So the enormous perspective from a, a global perspective. What you can't bring with you from the big company is big company-itis. In other words, the disorder that afflicts senior executives as they grow into large corporation management styles. What you have to do is to shuck that off and to be prepared to roll up your sleeves and do everything you can and focus on only one item, which is delivering that medicine. So I think the first is an important the global experience, and that's critical. The second is to have the knowledge and the, the willingness to admit that you don't actually transfer your experience from a big company to a little company. Indeed, much of what you've learned in terms of managing a company, you have to reject. And it's very hard, extremely hard, to go back from running, as I say, many, many tens of thousands of people to running uh, only a few. But what you also bring at that time is a, a deep understanding of people, how people work, what's important to them. And what's critical in a small company is knowing that you can't do something yourself. You have to have a team around you. So that you do bring, and that's embedded in me. And I believe that deal-making is only a part of what you learn. What you learn more about in a big company is how to manage people, how to understand the nuances of phrases that are brought to you that might mean one thing to one person and another to another. So you learn clarity in a small company, directness, 
openness. And that's something I did bring. Last thing that you bring is an enormous array of, of contacts. And I believe those contacts have proved quite remarkable. You're not in competition with anybody in a big company or another company. And therefore, they're willing to help you. And in many, almost all the cases of every single CEO in the large companies that I've met have opened their doors and welcomed me and said, let's talk about what you're doing. They may not do anything with us, but they certainly express an interest. In your current role, I imagine you've come to have more contact with patients than in, in previous roles. Does that have a qualitative effect on the way you feel about your work or approach it? Daniel, you know, as I said to you, I actually have bring a philosophy in both big and small companies, but and it relates to both patience and innovation. Uh, that's that's my that's my mission. I believe actually, and I've always believed that as a senior executive or as a startup CEO, that I have a covenant with the patient. That means that every time they take a medicine from me, be it by pill or by intravenous, you're changing their lives. Um, in this instance, yes, I do have much more contact with not just the individuals with the disorders, but also their families, because these individuals require 24-7 care. And what is truly inspiring is to see just how the families who've never had any medicines to help them cope with what are devastating diseases. And that motivates me tremendously. I feel that if we can be successful in helping those families, then we would have truly not just satisfied the covenant that I say we have, I feel I have, and we have as a company with the patient, but also there's a compact with society, which means you want to change, you want to make sure they get medicines. So it means that it drives me now to talk even more with the regulators, with the uh, with the insurers, etc., to make absolutely sure that not a single patient is left behind, because I know many of them, and I know the families. So yes, it does have a very profound qualitative effect on me. Well, let's talk about the work of Ovid. Your lead experimental therapy is in late-stage testing and Angelman syndrome. What is Angelman syndrome, and, and how does the disease manifest itself and progress? Well, Angelman syndrome is a syndrome which was unrecognized up until 50 years ago when a doctor, Harry Angelman, in England, defined common symptoms in a group of children. From that time forward, we've unraveled the genetics. We now know that it's caused by a defect which occurs in uterus in a single gene called the UB3A gene. And when this gene gets defective, what it does effectively is it has a devastating effect on all the cells of the brain. It's a gene which, when it has its effect, it doesn't affect one cell or two cells or an area of the brain. It affects the entire, the entire brain. So it's not like many other um, genetic disorders, for example, sickle cell, where it's really all the cells that are making blood, but they're all in the marrow. You can get to them easily. There you have a single gene that you can that you need to fix. Here you also have a single gene, but it's in every part of the brain. And what it does as the child grows up, 
starts to grow, is given birth, you don't know that, in fact, you have this disorder. It's not inherited except in about 2 to 3% of all cases. And so when you're born, and there are about, at this stage, about 24,000 families who have a child or somebody who's grown up in the family who has this, you randomly suddenly have the situation where the child doesn't develop, has devastating sleep disorders, doesn't sleep at night, also can express terrible epileptic episodes, has great difficulty in communicating, has enormous difficulty in walking. Each one of these defects coming from, or deficits coming from, the different parts of the brain that are affected by the disease. And then as they go further, they can't, indeed they can't write, they can't communicate, and often uh, you see them, all of the developmental ages are delayed. So you have a, a beautiful child, in general children with the most loving, wonderful disposition, starting to grow at and battling against enormous disabilities which are holding them back. And you know that inside each one of these children, there's a wonderful little child who's trying to come out. As they get older, the families are really deeply uh, engaged in trying to get a good night's rest, and they don't get it because the sleep this defect goes on forever. They it slightly ameliorates, and there are no medicines to help them whatsoever. So as time goes on, you see increasingly the children are basically taught, people try and teach them at school, some of the very best and the most highest functioning learn how to use a sort of iPad to communicate, and it's marvelous. The moms and the dads learn how to communicate a little bit with them, but not enough. And so much potential is lost with these children because they're basically put into special needs programs and finally they enter into long-term care or with the family and indeed they live a life up to the age of 70. So there are, or more actually, a normal lifespan. So a little gene defect leads to a massive impact on the individual and an even more devastating impact sometimes on families where people can't afford not to sleep. They give up work sometimes. So it's a really very, very devastating disorder. And we know what causes it today. That's what's exciting. Know that in fact that it is caused by that defect and that gene which causes a very, very specific change in the some basic mechanisms of the brain. And that basic mechanism is called tonic inhibition. Tonic inhibition is the way the, the brain distinguishes between signal and noise. And there's a protein in the brain called the, a uh, protein receptor in the brain called the extrasynaptic GABA receptor. Very complex name. Very complex. But that little, that complex receptor is found throughout the brain and it is very important because it allows you to say, say to pick out and to distinguish what's a signal. Just imagine, Daniel, if you're sitting in a room and there are 50 people in it and you can't tell whose voice you should be listening to. How confusing is that? Or you're walking down the street and your eyes are telling you that you're seeing a million different things and you don't know what to look at. Very hard.
Well, what is Ovid 101 and how does it work? So OV101 is the only drug in the world that actually repairs tonic inhibition. Its whole goal is to fix that ability to help the brain see, uh, distinguish between signal and noise. And the way it does this is that it replaces a very special uh, chemical in the brain. The chemical is a chemical called GABA. And the GABA has a very, in this instance, it manages to get to many different receptors, many different proteins. It's very important. It's used all through the brain for different things. But most importantly, it's used to transmit messages from one side of a, of a nerve to another nerve. But in doing so, some of it leaks out from the space between the nerves, which is called the extra, the synaptic gap. There's a little gap there between two nerves. It leaks out. And when it leaks out, it reaches the extrasynaptic GABA receptor and ignites it. But in Angelman, there isn't enough GABA getting to that extrasynaptic GABA receptor. It's called a low GABA situation. So as if you don't have a car with fuel. So what you have to do now is you have to replace it. And OV101 is the only medicine the only one, actually, that specifically does this. It goes to that receptor, and it's the only one thing it does. If you give it in high doses, it will spread through the brain and do other things. But if you give it in the correct dose, it gets exactly to that extrasynaptic GABA receptor, ignites it, and you switch on the process of tonic inhibition, and you start to improve different symptoms across all parts of the brain motor symptoms, sleep symptoms, uh, and hopefully we'll see communication symptoms and hopefully much more. What it doesn't do, it doesn't try, it doesn't affect the epilepsy, but it does affect all the other systems that you see, and that's very important. What's the clinical path forward, and if all goes well, how soon might you be able to file for regulatory approval? Well, Danielle, this is very, this has been the most gratifying thing. We've already passed through the what's called phase two. So we've proven that this drug has a clinical effect, a very significant clinical effect. And we've proven that the drug has an effect across multiple symptoms, motor, sleep, behavior, in a global fashion. In other words, all parts, all those areas of the brain that are affected by this disease have shown a response to it. And that's been very gratifying to see. We ran that clinical trial, it finished last year, and after discussions with the FDA, who've been extremely helpful, the, the FDA, we, we mapped out a course which started with, first of all, completing a phase three trial, and that phase three trial is called the Neptune trial, and we started it. We have our first patient will be in already and we are initiating it and we should finish that trial by the middle of next year. Our goal for this is that in this trial it will be the only trial uh, that we have to run. The FDA has been facil has facilitated this. This trial, unlike that which was finished last year, is in children between the ages of 2 and 12. 
We no longer have to run trials in adults or adolescents because that completed last year. So we are enrolling 66 children in this trial in a double-blind, what's called a double-blind placebo-controlled trial with the same dose that we used in the last um, in the last trial for adults and adolescents, but adjusted for weight of the children. We are going to be looking at the same length of trial, which is about 12 weeks, and we're going to be asking the question, how does this affect all of the global functions of the brain? And we've been very fortunate. The FDA has agreed with physicians and independent physicians and independent um, uh, uh, family members that the best way of measuring that global function is a measure called clinical global impression, a well-validated endpoint for other diseases, but never before used in Angelman. And we'll be using it as the way of deciding whether or not we're having an effect. So if all goes well, by the middle of next year, we will have had, we will have our evidence that this drug works. Hopefully it will do. We then have a very clear registrational path because at that moment, all the data from the phase two trial we did in adults and adolescents will now fold into this and we'll file with the FDA a registrational path that hopefully will bring us into a situation where late in 2020, early 2021, we have a clear route to getting an approval and a clear route for a new medicine in this area. And we're very excited about this because that means there will, this will be the first ever drug in Angelman's. And much more importantly, there are no other drugs in clinical development, none. So we will give hope to everybody that you can actually have a path to develop a drug and we will be helping patients. And that's why we're so excited about pioneering this. But equally, Danielle, and this is very important, we know our drug will get to every cell in the brain, every cell in the brain. And that means that we will hopefully have an effect on every single uh, change that has happened in those cells and help all the different symptoms. And maybe over time that will have great impact on these children. So they'll have a medicine for their entire life. It'll be a once-a-day drug at night, a simple pill, and with a very, very satisfactory, which to date has shown a very great, a very satisfactory uh, safety and tolerability profile. And if we're correct, we will change the lives of these children and their families. OV101 is also being developed as a potential treatment for Fragile X. How does Fragile X relate to Angelman's? Is it the same receptor that's implicated in the condition? Exactly right. In the case of Angelman's, it's exactly the same receptor, but for different reasons. They have the same problem. It's a low GABA situation, a problem of tonic inhibition. And in the case of Fragile X, what you have is a situation where because of the inherited disorder that you get, you do not produce enough GABA. So unlike Angelman's, where in fact you 
insufficient GABA gets to the extrasynaptic GABA receptor for technical reasons, which essentially involve the uh, the hoovering up, the vacuuming up of GABA from the extrasynaptic GABA receptor by anomalous proteins. In the case of Fragile X, you don't produce enough GABA. And that means that the extrasynaptic GABA receptor, again, can't function. Here, however, Fragile X is very complicated. One of the most striking things that you see is very severe behavioral problems, very severe. Unlike the Angelman's children, you don't see as much motor problems, locomotion. You don't see as much uh, epilepsy, and you don't see as much uh, behavioral, uh, as much um, sleep problems. You simply don't. It's a very different type of relationship, but this type of GABA impact is because the way that the receptor is expressed in different parts of the brain. It turns out the behavioral impact is much greater than any other. So we're targeting the behavioral impact, and there's well-validated tools to measure this. Our trial is a, here we're not giving it at night, we're giving the drug during the day. We're asking the question, what is the right dose to affect the behavior in these children or the adolescents that we're testing it on to have an impact? And once we know the right dose, we will be able to have a, a clear path, just as we did with Angelman's, to a drug that can be registered. And it's uh, it's very interesting. Here we have a situation where we know, again, very low doses of this drug really have a massive impact on animal models. We don't yet know what the exact do dose is on the human beings, and we're going to be working that out. So our current trial is designed to give us that clue and a clear route forward, and I'm very confident that we will get something out of it. Not yet sure what, but it's coming, and we'll know we'll be delighted to see the results when they do come. As you think about developing treatments for rare neurological conditions, where do you see the biggest challenges? Um, Daniel, this is such a good point. They're, they range at different levels. So on the first level, the most mundane is that there's often a dispute about what is the right way of treating a disease. Well, that's, and by that I mean, should it be a replace the gene? Should we have a, an oral medication? Should we have something that you inject into the, uh, into the spinal cord? Or are there other ways of treating this disorder? So the first thing is to ask the question, what are the right ways of treating it? Now, what has become evident is that sometimes there's very naive views that one thing is a solution for all. In actual fact, medicine tells us, drug discovery tells us, that the best way of treating a complex disorder is to find something that has an effect and then add other things that fix it. An example of this is seen all over the place. A simple genetic disorder like so-called simple, such as vertex, such as cystic fibrosis, you see vertex finding one drug that has a partial effect, two drugs that have a much bigger effect, three that have an even much bigger effect. 
You find this also in, um, and they all add together in a complex. You see this equally in leukemia. One drug doesn't affect, you put three together and it has a massive effect. The same thing applies also in uh, viral diseases such as uh, HIV. One drug not good enough, you add two or three, they start to really turn the drug, the disorder into a chronic disorder that leads people to lead normal lives. So I think the first thing is for everybody to understand that really starting out is finding the, the mechanism and then knowing that multiple ways of attacking that mechanism might be better than only one. So in Ovid's case, we know that our oral medication, we aim that every single patient will be on this one oral drug. The second thing is that we also know that maybe, just maybe, just maybe, there will be genetic drugs that might come along. And I use the word might. And when they do, we'll welcome them because maybe we'll see synergistic outcomes. So one thing is deciding on and being open to how things might happen in the future. The second is we're helped by the FDA in this. The second is in a rare disorder, how do you understand how to measure and affect endpoints? The endpoints in your clinical trial matter. So if you've never seen a disease or it's very rare, it's very difficult for clinicians to know what is the right endpoint. So it doesn't matter, there are 7,000 different disorders, 30 million Americans with these disorders, and 30 million families with these disorders, and this is a remarkable number, and many of them with very few, um, uh, very few physicians who understand it. So it is critical that in each case, there is a natural history developed so that you understand what is the natural progress of that disorder. That allows you then to think through what is the right way of measuring that you've had an impact on that disease, an endpoint. And finally, convincing the regulators that you have something that is objective, that measures the meaningful clinical effect on the, of the drug on the, on the patient, and that you can now assess that in a clinical trial. And in Ovid's case, we did that with Angelman. Nobody helped us. We went out. We found physicians who could objectively say that the way that you had to alter this disease was not by fixing walking, not by fixing sleeping, not by fixing uh, behavior. You had to affect all areas of this disease to be meaningful. And so our challenge was finding the right endpoint. And in doing so, we went to the FDA, we spoke to, uh, we spoke to regulators, we spoke to clinicians, we spoke to family members. And after objectively looking at many of these, we picked as the primary way of measuring this, the endpoint I mentioned, clinical global impression. Never before used in Angelman's, we showed that in our phase two, we could demonstrate a highly positive result there, on meaning that you're able to show that the drug could have an effect very clearly against placebo on multiple symptoms in the patient, and so therefore was having a meaningful effect on them, and now taking it into the, uh, into the phase three for the definitive analysis, we're able to use 
with confidence that same endpoint, which we know is objective, and we're able to get it. But what we didn't do, Danielle, is we didn't go randomly. This took a lot of work. We had to look at natural histories and talk to all these different people. In each rare disease, unless the child is going to die, unless there is something absolutely clear and unassailably different in that child from all others that is very simple, you must, for example, the child might be going blind. Or, for example, there is some terribly bad metabolic effect they can't urinate or they have some difficulty in handling, massive difficulty in processing certain proteins in their body and it, they accumulate, as you see in gauches. What you need to do there is you, you need to intervene on those endpoints. But in diseases where you have much more subtle, complex disorders, the neurodevelopmentally disorders such as Angelman's and Fragile X, Rett's and many others, you need to have something much more astute, much broader, to be able to measure a meaningful event. And that's why I think the second area of difficulty is the endpoint. Depends on the disease, but it is the endpoint. The third is really convincing people that this is an area that should be reimbursed for. And this is very important. Because if you don't, if you rarely see the disease, and you see that it's something that people sort of, you know, if you've never heard of it, why should a payer be paying for it? Well, you have to educate them how devastating the hundreds of thousands of system dollars that it costs to raise his children, the loss of education of that child, the loss of their ability to be productive, the loss of the family working who are unable to work because they don't have the ability to leave somebody looking after the child. This is, uh, this is really, really important for us to understand. So there's another whole quality in the rare diseases which are difficult to really appreciate until you're a family with that devastating disorder. At that moment, everything becomes clear. I should note that you were elected chairman of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization in June. As you think about the growing focus on rare disease within the industry, are there issues that you expect to see be top of mind for the organization in the next year? Oh, yes, definitely. The most important aspect that we first start with is these rare diseases are uh, not quite as rare as you as you think. It's as I said a few minutes ago, there are over 30 million families in the United States with these disorders. So that's a large percentage of the population. Now, as each one of them comes along, each one of them needs, we expect, because it's very costly to develop uh, products in this area, we expect several topics that need to be dealt with. One, how are we as a society going to pay for them? How can we avoid any perception that the modern biotech world exploits these patients? In other words, that we're not here to take a few patients and make them pay a fortune. How do we actually ensure that the reimbursement is appropriate to the value that they get and that they get access through the insurance systems 
that are built to support this kind of a patient. In other words, you know, we all play insurance. It's mostly healthy people paying insurance for a few people who are ill. Well, this is exactly, this is the healthy patients as healthy individuals paying for private insurance in many cases and a very few patients. But we need to make sure that everybody is able to be covered in their insurance. I believe that bio will most certainly be able to uh, play a role in ensuring that the right kind of policies are put forward to help ensure that uh, that these patients get treated and as a consequence of that will help stimulate massively investigation and hopefully cures for these disorders because that's what we have to be looking to do is trying to cure them. Jeremy Levin, CEO of Ovid Therapeutics. Jeremy, thanks so much for your time today. Daniel, thank you for your time and thanks for taking the interest in a set of rare diseases which I think people sometimes can so easily ignore. And I think, Danielle, think about every single family dotted across the United States who find their child is born with a defect, that that deficit is probably genetic, and there nobody around them even understands it. And for me, if we as a, as a organization, if Ovid can make a difference to those families, we will. So I really appreciate your taking the time to listen to the story. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.